In the early chapters of the book of Acts, we find divine mathematics at work. Acts chapter 2 verse 47 tells us that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. He added. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 will tell us the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. In chapter 2, God adds, he multiplies in chapter 6, but God never divides. It's only man that does that. But in Acts chapter 5, God does some divine subtraction. Tonight we're going to tackle the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which reminds me there were two pastors, they were chit-chatting about their churches One pastor asked, he says, have you had any additions to your church? His friend replied, no, but we've had some blessed subtractions. (laughs) Well, tonight we got a killer of a passage. I'm talking a real drop-dead Bible study tonight. It's a knockout, let me tell you. As new believers, Ananias and Sapphira were just dying to get into the Bible, and tonight we're going to discover how they did it. We'll pick it up in chapter 4, verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And what a beautiful, what a beautiful place that is to be. One heart, one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Now again, as we talked about last week, some people claim the early church practiced a form of communism. But that's not true. Communism is a forced system of sharing and spreading the wealth. What existed here was communism, a voluntary sharing. See, here's the difference between communism and Christianity. Communism says, what's yours is mine, whereas Christianity says, what's mine is yours. Big difference. Well, verse 33 And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And I love this description. Here's a summary statement of life in the early church. Great power and great grace. But great power and great grace are sustained by great purity. For hypocrisy can undermine God's blessings on a church. That's what we're about to see in chapter 5. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. Now understand the church now numbered probably 15,000 people. We know there were over 5,000 men. Maybe 15, 20,000 members. Explosive growth had taken place in a short time. Many of these new converts, remember, were Jewish pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. They had no place to stay. They had nothing to eat. And yet they needed to linger a few weeks longer to get grounded in their newfound faith. Wealthier believers came to the rescue. They liquidated some assets to finance these extended stays. One such man was named Joseph, and Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus 
having land, sold all and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, we're going to discover later why Joseph was renamed Barnabas or son of encouragement. He was just that. He must have been a wonderful brother who encouraged others and actually uh, helped be a liaison between the Apostle Paul and the rest of the church. He's the one who, who brought Paul into the circle. The Old Testament law prohibited the tribe of Levi from owning land. Their inheritance was the temple service. They, they were the ones who took care of the worship of the temple. But apparently God's law had been unable to tame the heart of Barnabas. He was a Levite. But instead of, instead of um, being content with the temple service, he decided to own land. The law had failed to pry his hands off of that possession. But what the law failed to do, the love of Jesus accomplished. For when Jesus filled this man's heart, the contents of his wallet wasn't that important anymore. The love of Jesus turns this greedy man into a giver. Barnabas laid all down at the apostles' feet, brought all his money and laid it down at their feet. I love this. It, the love of Jesus, it turns misers into philanthropists. Here Barnabas bows at the apostles' feet. It's interesting that later he will become an apostle. Well, chapter 5 begins. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, they sold a possession. So they wanted to get in on the act too. Now understand, Ananias and Sapphira, here is the all-American couple. Here's the all-American couple living in Jerusalem. In high school, Ananias was the captain of the football team. Sapphira was the head cheerleader, the homecoming queen. And now they drive a Mercedes to church every Sunday. They dress in designer jeans. They live on a golf course out in the burbs. They even have a Bible study meeting in their home. This storybook couple was the epitome of respectability. They were the poster child for conservative, evangelical success. They even dabbled in real estate. And this is what made them feel so uneasy. For their friends at church were getting serious about following Jesus, even to the point of it lightening their wallet. Here, Mr. and Mrs. Country Club feel threatened. They're thinking, what happened to moderation? Believers in Jesus are selling all possessions and pooling their resources. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, they liked playing religion. But boy, this was real giving. This was real commitment. This was an encroachment on their lifestyle. And here was their quandary. They weren't about to relinquish control of their property, but they didn't want to appear stingy or materialistic. And for this couple, image was everything. They couldn't tolerate looking unspiritual. So here's what they did, verse 2. They sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now realize God never required this selling off of property and giving it to the church. This wasn't God's requirement. This was all being done voluntary by the people. 
Neither did God tell Ananias to give all the proceeds from the sale of his property. He could have donated a portion and just said so. It didn't have to be all. Ananias' sin was to give part, but then claim to give all. He lied. And he gets busted. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? See, Ananias' giving was designed to impress people rather than please God. It was about image, not integrity. Apparently, God could have tolerated their stinginess, even their materialism. But what he couldn't let gain traction in the church was their hypocrisy. Here are two people who care more about looking good than being real. This is style over substance. And friends, this is the blight of our modern church. Well, Peter grills Ananias in verse 4. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Notice in verse 3, Peter tells Ananias that he lied to the Holy Spirit. Now in verse 4, he says that he lied to God. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is God. That's the conclusion we can draw. Here's one of the many biblical proof texts for the deity of the Holy Spirit. Well, then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. And here is a genuine case of being slain in the Spirit. But I doubt any of us would want to share this fate. God struck down this church member named Ananias. And the man took a final dying gasp. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And I'm sure it did. Can you imagine? And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. You see, in ancient Israel, corpses were disposed of rather quickly. They were actually buried as quickly as possible. There was no risk of stench or disease. They didn't even allow the body time to, uh, to be prepared. They would take it immediately and they would bury it. They didn't even take time to notify the next of kin. And so they take the body out and they bury him. I mentioned earlier that great grace and great power were cornerstones in the early church, but I think there was one more, great fear. All three. Church in the book of Acts was serious business. Hypocrites who went to church came home repentant or in a body bag. That's a pretty serious church, wouldn't you say? I mean, play at religion, just come and be a poser, claim to be more than you really are, and God would take care of the issue. And the neighborhood respected the high standard. That's the thing we'll see. You know, Satan is sneaky. In Acts chapter 4, he tried to silence the church with threats and intimidation. But the disciples, they dropped to their knees and they prayed for boldness. You remember? Now in Acts chapter 5, Satan tries a different strategy. Intimidation has failed. So now he tries infiltration. 
He tries to water down the faith. He tries to dilute their commitment. See, the devil tries to contaminate the church with hypocrisy. He takes the attitude, well, if I can't beat them, I'll just join them. But Peter looked right through Ananias, and he challenged him. Why has Satan filled your heart? Peter knew exactly where this was coming from. He saw that Satan was behind Ananias' deception. Now today, weak-kneed saints will often question God's severity here. Was it really necessary to deal so harshly? In fact, if God used the same standards today, boy, we'd start singing, I surrender all. People start dropping like flies all over the sanctuary. Wages would need to bring a fleet of hearses up here to haul off all the bodies. Be a boon for their business. Whenever God launches a new movement, he uses a flurry of miracles to authenticate its genuineness. And in Acts, this is what we've seen so far. We've seen the rushing mighty wind, the flames of fire over the disciples' head, the healing of the lame man. We've seen a flurry of miracles authenticating the genuineness of what's happening. But then God deals harshly to preserve the work's integrity. You remember when God brought Israel into the promised land? He worked miraculously at Jericho, but the very next battle was Ai. You remember what happened? Achan, Achan's sin. He hid, he hid some treasure in his tent. He too played the hypocrite. He kept back what belonged to God. Achan's sin cost them a devastating defeat. As a result of it, they lost the next battle. God judged Achan to rid the camp of hidden sin, of hypocrisy. And this is the pattern in the book of Acts. God authenticates the genuineness of it, but then he protects the church from hypocrisy. God wants the church then and now to realize the priority he places on purity and integrity, spiritual pride and deceit and two-faced spirituality are sins that short-circuit the work of God. And here God deals harshly with Ananias and Sapphira. Now It was about three hours later when his wife came in. Don't know where she'd been. Might have been shopping at the mall. She had a little extra cash. She came in not knowing what had happened. But remember, she's in on the duplicity. Remember verse 2, called her a co-conspirator. She was aware of what was happening. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. She didn't have to lie. She did, though. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Now notice her sin. She tested the Spirit of the Lord. She challenged God's omniscience and His discernment. The fact that she lied and thought she could get away with it was a slap in the face of the Holy Spirit. She tested the Lord. You can't hide the truth from God. I read of a restaurant in New York City that built its business on hypocrisy. 
Husbands bring their wives to this restaurant. Sometimes boyfriends bring their girlfriends. Couples get seated, and they get handed a menu. But what the girl doesn't know is that the prices in her menu are triple the cost of the prices in the man's menu. So when he leans in and tells her, honey, just order whatever you want, she is deceptively impressed. Yet this is a dangerous ruse, for when the lady finds out what's really going on, it can backfire. Well, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, God knew what was up from the start. He saw their motive. He knew what was happening. Their cover-up was doomed. Sapphira could have come clean, but then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out, buried her by her husband. The golden couple, the high school football captain and the homecoming queen are buried in adjacent plots. They died in shame as a warning to the church. And so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. You better believe that after Ananias and Sapphira, the church was on its best behavior. And yet, none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And I find this very interesting. For a time, this slowed the growth rate of the church. You can imagine why. But it, it intensified the respect. And in the end, this yielded greater growth. Grace was still shown, but folks realized God takes faith seriously. You know, the church in all eras needs to be careful about dumbing down the concept of holiness. When we lower the bar, we lose the public's respect. In every era, the church needs to foster great grace and great fear. But it didn't take long for the church to start growing again, for verse 14 tells us. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. You know, the law of the vineyard applies to the church as it does to the vineyard, to the grapes. Rather than more foliage, the vine dresser is after more fruit. And so he prunes back the sucker shoots that just sort of bleed off the valuable sap. And the same applies to the church. At times, a church has folks hanging on with hypocritical or contentious or bitter spirits. There comes a point when God has to lop off the bad apple, so to speak. After Mr. and Mrs. Ananias dropped out, a new surge of folks came in. It's like God had pruned back the plant for new growth. The church continued to grow and grow and grow. So that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches. That at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. And they were all healed. There was a surge of people and a surge of power. You know, we learn in the book of Acts 
that purity and power, man, go hand in hand. As soon as God rids the camp of sin, the camp erupts with more people and with more power. Miracles happen. The sick are healed. Demoniacs are delivered. And this passage shows us just how far Peter has come. You remember a few months earlier, Peter was sitting in the shadows, weeping bitterly that he had denied Jesus, afraid of being arrested. But now he is so associated with the living Lord that people have connected his shadow with supernatural healing. Now understand, I don't believe there was anything miraculous about Peter's shadow. But people were healed because it triggered their faith. His shadow was a point of release for their faith. You know, faith can be a nebulous thing, a vague kind of thing, until it has a focus. This is why we practice the laying on of hands when we pray. Sometimes the laying on of hands becomes a rallying point for our faith. This is how the service that Peter's shadow served. It brought substance to the people's faith. And not surprisingly, people were healed by faith. Well, verse 17, Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and remember, the Pharisees were Jesus' enemies. The Sadducees tormented the church. They were the ones who didn't believe in the resurrection. And what did the church come preaching? The resurrection of Jesus. And they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. There's a lot of laying on of hands going on here. This is a different kind of laying on of hands. They get thrown in, into prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Notice how the angel defines Christianity as this life. You know, Christianity is more than a set of doctrines. Following Jesus is a lifestyle. It's a mindset to which you commit to live your life. It's this life that we live. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. They didn't beat around the bush, notice. I mean, the angel said, go stand in the temple and preach. And the next morning, they report for duty. You know, here's a, here's a geography quiz for you. What's the world's largest nation? Answer, procrastination. Get it? Get it? Get it? Most people live in the state of procrastination than in any other state, trust me. Hey, when God gives orders, don't hesitate. Don't procrastinate. Just activate. The disciples, they enter the temple and they start preaching the very next morning. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Now, the Jewish hierarchy, they send down to the prison for Peter, but he's already in the temple preaching the gospel, courtesy of the angel's early, early release program. <laughs> but when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priests heard these things, 
They wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Surprise, surprise. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. This council was the Jewish Sanhedrin. This was the highest court in Judaism. It was their supreme court. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. What a compliment to Peter and the apostles. They had filled the city with the gospel. Don't you long for that to happen in our city? Shouldn't that be our goal? To flood our city with the good news of Jesus? Well, they also accused Jesus, or they accused Peter of intending to bring this man's blood on us. And what a short memory they have. You remember the high priest forgot his own words when he asked Pilate to release Barabbas. You remember what he said of Jesus? His blood be on us and on our children. And now Peter isn't going to let him forget what he asked for on that ominous day. But Peter and the other apostles, they answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now later in his, in his letter, Peter is going to write, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man, for this is the will of God. You need to know that Peter was no anarchist. He believed that you should be submitted to the governing authorities, that this is a Christian virtue. If we can't submit to human authority, how can we submit to authority that we can't see, to God's authority? An authority that is invisible. Peter believed in paying taxes. He believed in driving the speed limit. He obeyed the civil authority. As long as its demands didn't conflict with the will of God. But... When that happened, Peter says, I've got no choice. Should I obey man or God? And Peter says, that's no choice at all. It's always better to obey God. And Peter renews his preaching efforts with the Sanhedrin themselves. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Wow, Peter, what boldness. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The greater their threats, the braver Peter became. He broke their laws before he left the very room that he was in. Every time he preaches now, his life is threatened. But Peter preaches fearlessly. What a difference the power of the Holy Spirit makes in a person's life. He's a changed man now that he's been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And of course, when the Jews heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill him. Then one in the council stood up. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people. And commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. In other words, he wants to speak to the Jews privately. 
Now, Jewish sources tell us that Rabbi Gamaliel was the preeminent scholar of his day. His contemporaries called him, and I quote, the beauty of the law. In fact, at his funeral, it was said, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. That's how much they thought of Gamaliel. He was so well respected by all the Jews, both fellow Pharisees and rival Sadducees. As a side note, note, according to Acts chapter 22, verse 3, one of his most brilliant students was a young Jew from Tarsus, a man by the name of Saul, who later would be renamed Paul. He was a student of Rabbi Gamaliel. Well, this Gamaliel, he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew, many, uh, drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. We know very little about either Thutis or Judas. But that was Gamaliel's point. These guys, they created a stir, yet it was short-lived. It died out rather quickly. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. If it's of man, it'll go the way of Thutis and Judas. But if it's of God, you can't defeat it. And why would you even want to? Who really wants to fight with God? Gamaliel gave the Sanhedrin some wise and sage advice. In fact, I wonder what Gamaliel would say today, what he would tell us 2,000 years later, now that Christianity has transformed cultures and birthed civilizations, and affected countless generations, and spread to the four corners of the globe, I'm sure he would conclude that this Jesus movement was of God after all. Verse 40, And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Rather than execute the apostles, they roughed them up a bit, had them flogged. It was one more attempt to shut them up. And you've got to love the reaction of the followers of Jesus. No apostolic pity parties here. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Is that your reaction when you're persecuted at work? When your buddies mock you and laugh at you, do you walk away rejoicing that you were counted worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' name? And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. I love how Winston Churchill defined a fanatic. He said, a fanatic is someone who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. Well, that was the apostles. How do you stop guys who interpret a beating as a blessing? Throw them in prison 
and they praise God. Shame them and they take it as an honor. Try to silence them and they grow more public and vocal. You know, these disciples, I'm sure they recall Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. How do you defeat people who are living for heaven's reward? You don't. Well, chapter 6 begins. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now remember the divine mathematics. God adds. He multiplies. He even subtracts, but he never divides. It's the members of a church that stir up division. I've heard of churches splitting over the color of the carpet or whether a piano or a guitar should lead worship or the location of the water cooler in the new building. I've heard of churches splitting over lots of trivial stuff. Obviously, there are some issues worth fighting for, but how often have churches divided over picky, petty matters? Often superficial stuff is what takes us off the rails. Which brings us to Acts chapter 6, the first church squabble. The church of Jerusalem has a breach over bread. This dispute erupts over whether the Greek widows were getting a fair share of the groceries or the benevolence. This conflict was over a minor matter, but as these situations often do, it had escalated to major proportions. The word Hellenist refers to Jews who had embraced the Greek language and the Greek culture. Hebrew purists, they resented the Hellenists. They considered Hellenists to be compromisers. And there was a tension between these two groups. There were Hellenists who had received Jesus as their Savior. There were Hebrew purists who had received Jesus as their Savior. And they were having a hard time to get, getting along. So when there seemed to be inequities in the distribution of the church's benevolence, the Hellenists were quick to call foul and accuse the Hebrew Christians of discrimination, prejudice. It was an ugly, volatile situation with the potential of permanently thwarting the rapid expansion and righteous harmony of the infant church. Disaster, though, was averted because of some wise leadership. Verse 2. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now the complaint was trivial, but the underlying problem was far more serious. You see, the apostles were stretched too thin. They were being asked to do it all. Think about it. They were hammering out sound doctrine and fighting with the Sanhedrin and discipling new believers. Now they're supposed to wait on tables too? It was just too much. And I got to tell you, pastors today face the very same dilemma. Everybody wants me to be there. Every time there's a meeting or a wedding or a funeral or a special event, 
or when a member heads to the hospital or a teenager gets into trouble or you have a squabble with your spouse. People want their emails answered and their phone calls taken and their invitation accepted. Pastor, can you spare me a few minutes of your time? And oh yeah, we need two quality Bible studies every single week. That's a given. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying it can be a lot. And this is why I won't even mention the burnout rate for pastors. It's astronomical. If a pastor's going to survive, he has to learn to say no. To prioritize and to delegate. And this is what the apostles do in Acts chapter 6. They realize that they're the paper jam. They're the bottleneck in the life of the church. And if they don't get other people involved, they're going to hinder the work that they're trying to advance. Their priority is clear. They say, it is not desirable that we leave the Word of God. And realize the ministry of the Word should be every pastor's top priority. The Bible is called a fire, a food a sword, a hammer. It is God's revelation to man. Without it, we'd be lost, defenseless, hopeless. Duffy Doherty was the longtime coach of the Michigan State Spartans. Once he told his football team, men, when you're playing for the national championship, it's not a matter of life and death. It's more important than that. Hey, that's a sky-high priority. More important than life and death. Yet that's how every pastor should feel about teaching the scriptures. Hey, from week to week, other needs can seem more urgent than preparing another Bible study. But in God's wisdom, nothing is more vital for the health of the church. And the apostles knew this. And they decided to delegate. Verse 3. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The whole matter was about the daily distribution. The Greek word for distribution is diakonos, which is the same word, our word, deacon. And that's why these seven men that were chosen to carry on this business were considered the church, the church's first deacons. It's interesting to note the simple leadership structure that existed in the early church. The apostles and the elders, the pastors, they led and fed the flock while the deacons served. Elders were overseers, deacons were designated doers. The elders took care of the spiritual needs, whereas the deacons handled the daily distribution, the physical needs. Elders oversaw, deacons undergird. Also notice the spiritual qualifications given to the men who passed out lunch to the widows. They had to be of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Seems like a pretty high standard for lunchroom monitor. But realize... The church has no menial jobs. There is no menial job in God's work. Every person we serve is bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Everyone that comes in our contact should be treated with love and wisdom. Churches today often have the wrong focus when it comes to church leadership. They're rigid in regards to structure of the leadership, but they compromise when it comes to the character of the men who occupy that structure. We get it all backwards. You see, the New Testament is flexible regarding structure, but it is unwavering when it comes to a leader's character. Well, verse 5 records the church's reaction to the apostles' delegation. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. In other words, a major schism was averted. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip. And the next two chapters in the book of Acts are going to be about Stephen and Philip. They also chose Procurus. He was a longtime assistant to the apostle John. He died a martyr's death, we know. They chose Nicanor. Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And this Nicholas may have ended up a bad apple. We don't know. Some teachers identify Nicholas with the heresy spoken of in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the sin of the Nicolaitans. Nico means ruler, and Laos means people. And thus the Nicolaitans practiced a bullying type of leadership the very opposite of what the deacons were instituted to do, which was to serve. The Nicolaitans loved to rule over people. Could it be that this Nicholas rebelled against his role as a deacon and wanted power and authority in the church? And rather than remain a servant, this Nicholas became a tyrant. Could be. We don't know. One other point, later, elders are appointed by fellow elders, but here deacons are selected by the church. Peter said, seek out from among you. And in light of that, isn't it interesting that all seven deacons chosen had Greek or Hellenistic names? You remember the problem that necessitated all this? The Hellenistic widows felt slighted. Thus, the church in Jerusalem chose servants that the perceived victims would tend to trust, fellow Hellenists. Obviously, what was important in this church was a sense of unity and harmony. Well, according to verse 6, the deacons were set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Notice they began their ministry with prayer. Good way to begin any ministry. And then the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. The apostles' decision to prioritize God's word and to delegate these simpler tasks unclogged the bottleneck. The apostles' decision not to try to do it all, but pass the ministry on to others spawned a new season of growth. This is what we hope to do We hope to be able to pass the ministry on. We want you to be fellow servants in the Lord. You know, we we realize that our priorities is to be the ministry of the Word. And so pray for us that we can maintain those priorities. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. What an interesting uh, development. In the first century, Israel, 
In the first century Israel, there were about 8,000 priests who served in the temple. 8,000. The Jewish priesthood, of course, was limited to a select group, to one family, to the descendants of Aaron. But in Christ, everyone gets in on the priestly action. For Jesus has delegated the priestly authority. In Christ, every believer has a direct connection with God. Therefore, we all can go before the throne of God. We're all his priests, not just one family. Old Testament priests were no longer needed. Perhaps this resonated among the Jewish priests. Maybe they were conscious of Judaism's limits. They also saw how the temple veil had been torn when Jesus died. The separation was over. It was a sign. In Christ, the separation between God and man is done with. Every believer in Jesus now has access, the access of a priest. It's no surprise that some of the priests were obedient to the faith. Many of the priests. And then verse 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Boy, it didn't take long for Stephen to go from table waiter to miracle worker. Apparently, God had rewarded Stephen's faithful service with a broader and a bolder ministry. He was faithful in a little, and God rewarded him with more. Some of you are saying, man, I don't, I don't really want to be a servant. I want to be a miracle worker. You know, where did the miracle workers start? They start out by being servants. God can work miracles through a servant. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen. Apparently, there's a contingent of Jews known as the freedmen. These were Jews whose fathers had been Roman slaves, but had somehow won their freedom. And apparently, they had formed their own synagogue, and for some reason... They had a beef with Stephen. We don't know all the details. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They hired slanderers to conjure up fake news and falsely accuse Stephen. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council, that is the Sanhedrin. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. And change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. I like what Charles Spurgeon used to say to his students. He said, men, when you teach on heaven, let there always be a glow on your face, a gleam in your eye, and a grin on your lips. When you teach on hell, your normal face will do. (laughs) Apparently, Stephen had a certain glow about him. Reminds me of Exodus chapter 34. You remember when Moses 
spent time in the presence of God on top of Mount Sinai. When he came down from the mountain, a visible sheen, a sparkle, a luster lingered and radiated from his face. I like to call it the divine shine, the mo glow. (laughs) Evidently, God's glory had a comparable effect on Stephen's face. The similarity between Moses and Stephen should have tipped off the Jews that rather than contradict Moses, rather than unhitch himself from Moses, Stephen was acting in harmony with him. Stephen was going to show how Jesus fulfilled the law. And we're going to study Stephen's testimony in Acts chapter 7.